And uh, Ken, let's begin with a game that a week ago we didn't know was going to be played. I mean, we not only that, we didn't even know it was possible that these two teams would even, you know, have the opportunity to face all. Well, it gets even better because the way they went about it, and again, I didn't get the details on the story. Maybe you did, but Washington State had just played Brigham Young the day before and lost. Non-conference game, but you know it is a regional game at the very least. They get on a, a private jet. Well, actually, it's a private turboprop plane, but they showed the picture of the plane on Instagram. So they all pile into this, uh, sh- this small airplane, and they go from Provo, Utah, to the East Coast just to sneak a non-conference game in and... You know, you gotta love life in the Pac-10, Pac-12. I'm about to say Pac-10, Pac-12, because I mean they travel long distances to begin with. Okay, I even showed up on the schedule because now what they often do is they stay on the road. Let's say, for example, right. if they're going to play Cal and Stanford, which they are going to do right out of the Christmas break, they'll stay in the Bay Area and then they'll play. Arizona, Arizona State, and USC on a southern swing. But travel in the Pac-12 is expensive. But this is ridiculous. Just to shoot out there on a back-to-back for a non-conference game, and I'll tell you something, they're not bad. They played Stony Brook no. really tough. Yeah. among One of the best teams you know, in the Pac-12, in terms of RPI, actually entered the afternoon with a higher RPI than Stony Brook. They're among... You know, the top 60 schools, Stony Brook around the top 80. That's definitely going to change. They're, they came in the day receiving votes in the national polls, Matt. So, you know, they were a team not to take lightly. But as you said, crazy circumstances leading to this happening. Especially considering, as we said, these teams weren't scheduled to play each other. Today, originally, Washington State was supposed to play against Cornell. And that would have been a noon, or rather a 3 p.m. start time for them. That got canceled. Meanwhile, at the same time, Stony Brook always had Sunday off, but their Tuesday game against Marist got canceled. So as well as their Tuesday game against Hofstra. That's so right. One thing that, leads that's to one another, of the reasons why they wanted to get one in there. But finding an all too willing participant in Washington State of all people, I mean that's random. But here's the thing. <laughs> yes. Okay. It is the first time in program history that the Seawolves have beaten a power five opponent at home. Well, first of all, they never get them at home, number one. Right. So this is an on-ball game in and of itself. But a big win for the Seawolves, 69-62 the final. And it was a game that was anything but decided until the final seconds because, of course, the Seawolves having to go to the line and hang all their free throws, which was great. Yep. But uh, I'll tell you something, Erlette Scott had a hell of a game, 20 points setting the pace for, for the Seawolves. And uh, the other great thing about it is that they hit. Uh, they were pretty good at hitting their shots, too, close to 50%. They were 50% in the first quarter, then they tapered off a little bit in the second, but really poured it on the third and the fourth. And the funny thing was, the day before at Brigham Young, Washington State had hit a bunch of threes and couldn't hit from the field at all. Uh, within the within the arc, and today it was kind of the other way around, where they're bombing threes all over the place, and 
had a lot of trouble hitting him, only 20%. They went 7 for 35. Yeah. Okay, 35 three-point attempts. And I don't know what the record is in terms of three-point attempts against on the Seawolves, but that's got to be up there. <laughs> yeah, you want to talk about two teams that loved small ball, Matt. You know, this was the game. You know, both teams taking plenty of shots from long range. And as you said, in a Washington State's case, weren't really connecting on too many, especially towards the bottom part of the game. But it was that top half of the game where they stay alive because, you know, they may be taking 10 and only making two or three, but on the other end, Stony Brook was working the inside as well, keeping it a tie contest. Well, their lead player is, of course, Charlize uh, Ledger-Walker from New Zealand. She took 27 shots of her own, 6 for 27, 4 for 16, 16 threes herself. Okay, yeah. just to give you an idea, the Seawolves only took 13 as a team. Right, exactly. So, and that, that's an interesting thing, too, because I think you put a great is that these two teams, while the play styles were different, you know, obviously Sunderbrook worked a lot inside. Uh, Washington State Cougars, they worked from long range. They were still, I thought, pre-even for through virtually the whole game. You could tell by halftime, you know, the score was tied. They were essentially matching each other, you know, blow for blow throughout the contest. And, and that's it was interesting, interesting too, thing. because of the different play styles, where, as you said, they really relied on really one player to get a lot of their scoring output. Similarly, some of the Stony Brook teams in the past, back when, you know, Shania Johnson was around. But now we look at Stony Brook, and they have three or four players really step up. Yeah, Rolette Scott did a lot of the scoring, 20 points. Annie Warren came back from injury, and she finished with 14 of her own and was a big part of Seawolves hanging in there in the second half, along with India Pagano 12. They didn't take any free throws the entire first half. They didn't start taking free yeah. throws until the fourth quarter. And Erlet Scott hit six for seven. Anastasia Warren, as you said, four for four. India Pagan took a couple, two for two. And 13 for 15 overall. But they weren't really put on the line until uh, the until the Cougars were forced to foul. And when, they, when the time came, they hit them. And the great thing about it, too, is that they maintained their composure throughout, and they weren't throwing desperate shots up. Their selection mm -hmm. was good, and they were very deliberate in you know what they were in the shots that they took. So they were four for thirteen from three, which is okay. Twenty six for fifty seven from the field, which is also okay. But the most important thing is Earlette Scott seven for fourteen. Anastasia Warren, four, four for nine. India Pagan, five for seven. So, again, not a lot of shots. Uh, Khalees Corley, four for five. Not a lot of shots, but what they took hit. Yeah, and honestly, the game changer really came in that third quarter. It was 37 all. And out of nowhere, you know, Stony Brook just goes on an 8-0 run to extend their lead. And you said Cor Corley really started that with a three-pointer and then that was followed up by another bucket from her, so her as well as a layup. You know, she was responsible for six of those eight points, add in a free couple of free throws from Vargas Reyes and Erlet Scott. So she really coming off the bench, she really stepped up, I thought, today for the Seawolves and was a surprising, you know, factor as well. But you know, with some of their key usual players still out, like uh Zilchek, well Gizbuche got her minutes, but for you know, Corley really stepping up as that sixth player for the team, I thought was big. And was she was really just hard to guard for the Cougars, and it showed because she didn't have to do too much, but her nine points were really what swung momentum in Stony Brook's favor. Well, even more importantly, in their 21 minutes, she got the nine points. 
Nobody on the team had to play more than 32 minutes. Yeah. In other words, Gigi Gonzalez didn't have to stay out there all day long, and neither did Warren, neither, neither, neither did Scott. Uh, Scott had 30, Warren 32, and Gonzalez 32 herself. And uh, Lee Amory Wool 27. So even among yeah, the starters. Yeah, it just that line, huh? No points, 10 rebounds, eight of them de- defensively, and was a Kickstarter in some of those fast break opportunities, had a pair of assists, and contributed to some of those second chance opportunities as well. Yeah, and that's an important thing too to to uh, take note of because she didn't get on the board. As a matter of fact, uh, she only uh, she only attempted four shots and didn't hit any of them or a couple inside. Yeah, yeah, in heavy traffic. But uh, I'll tell you something. This is a big confidence builder, I think, for the Seawolves. Yeah, uh, one they didn't anticipate. And they were anticipating a battle over in Hofstra and Uniondale, as is always the case. But instead, they come up with a monumental win here, as we said. First win against a power conference team at home. And a game that wasn't even on the schedule last week. Now, yeah. what's coming up? Win Go ahead. For, it was a statement win for a team that already came in full of confidence. They were 8-1 on the season, going up against an 2 team, receiving votes, as I said, and they managed to outshoot them, going 45-30-86 from the field. And even with their bread and butter of three-pointers, not having necessarily relying it too much today, they were able to get it done inside and established they really got some great depth pieces, you know, coming from the bench, some new players really stepping up for others that were out. Even Annie Warren, who was out, coming in, and she didn't play her best game, but I thought still played really good, especially in her first game back. So well, this team, to me, is the team to beat in the America East. And honestly, they got to start getting some national attention now that you beat you know, a team like the Cougars. Well, not only that, Washington State, they made the NCAA last year. Uh, the uh, Pac-12 sent six teams, half their conference, to the NCAA, and they were the sixth. But they were picked to finish uh, higher this year, and they went in with a pretty good record, 8-2, and two, now 8-3. and three. But most importantly, they're a team that's on the rise, and that and the Seawolves caught them, you know, at a rather odd time. Like I said, maybe the back-to-back affected them. I don't really think it affected them that much. But what's coming up for the Seawolves because of this game and because the Hofstra game got canceled, they have a nice long Christmas break. But they're Holy. back in action next Thursday, not this coming, but next, the 30th, and that will be at NJIT, and that is when the America <laughs> East schedule kicks in. And yes. then we get them back at home on Sunday, January 2nd, at home against Hartford. But the um, it's going to be America East the rest of the way, and it, they're set up perfectly for it. I think Agreed. that this was a great tune-up to get into the America East and, and have your confidence riding high. And, you know, maybe somebody will sneak up on them here or there. Are they going to have a perfect record in the American East? We don't know. But still, oh, no, yeah. <laughs> they're still the best team in the conference, and yeah. they've proven by it. By a long shot, too, Matt. You know, I'm yeah. sure you're looking. Take a look at the stats so far. Every team playing at least eight games. Stony Brook's the only one above 500. Vermont's at 500 at 5-5. Five and five. Every other team is below 500, including Hartford, who's 0-10, who's going to be their first home opponent. And NGIT was five and six, who they're facing next. So you know, you look through the conference, and there's a lot of games on those schedules that are really should wins for this women's basketball program. And honestly, to me, you know, it, is it possible that this team goes 
undefeated? Yeah, is it likely? Probably not. But I don't see an upset like we saw a couple years ago. Remember that winless Hartford team pulling off that crazy upset against, I think at the time was the number one top-seeded Seawolves team like a couple years ago. You know, it's going to be a team that's picking up some steam, whether that's Albany or Vermont or uh, Binghamton. Well, is as typical of the America East. Everybody plays a tough non-conference schedule. And one that stands out is because Maine, of course, has been Stony Brook's biggest obstacle in recent years yeah. to gain to the NCAA. So let me give you a, give everybody a picture of Maine's non-conference schedule. They started out at Nebraska, got beat by 58 points. Uh, Providence in the Big East lost in overtime, okay, Got beat pretty handily by Delaware, so they lost their first three games of the season. Beat Yale, beat BU, lost to Army in double OT, got beat pretty good by Princeton, got beat up by Drexel, then Rhode Island, they lost by a point. And just recently today, beat Dartmouth. So that is not really much of an indicator of how they're going to fare in the American East. They've got one more non-conference game, and that is on Wednesday uh, against Northeastern. And then they start their conference schedule same day the Seawolves do at Vermont. So uh, May could still be a threat. The thing that sure. can throw okay. people off is they look at these records, and with the exception of Hartford, which, is, you know, we, as we said, is relegating it's themselves. Yeah. That's, that's to be expected. <laughs> there are, there's nobody out there. UMBC is 1-9. But if you take a look at, you know, let's say, Stonybrook's first opponent in the America East this year will be NJIT, and they lost to Wagner. Then they had to go to Marquette, Wisconsin. They beat Wisconsin on the road, beat LIU in overtime, beat Central Connecticut, lost by 10 to Fairleigh Dickinson, beat St. Peter's, lost to Ryder, Lafayette, lost to Monmouth. So, you know, those teams are pretty much on their level. Beat St. Francis. So that's a team that, you know, could give Stony Brook a tough time. But the most important thing here is that they've all been tuning up, and these non-conference records can be rather deceptive. I mean, take a perfect example being Maine. I mean, they, they ran the gauntlet. And just taking a look at, let's say, another one here, looking at Binghamton, who's 4-5 and five on the season so far. They've got losses to Cornell, St. Bonaventure, okay, Fairleigh Dickinson, Lehigh, and Eastern Michigan. So, again, they're teams that, you know, on their level are slightly above. But, as, as, as I said, the custom in the America East, they fight at their weight or even beyond. And... There, there have been some big wins by America East teams, not just Stony Brook in this non-conference schedule. I mean, if you are looking at the conference as a whole, you got to be very happy. And what's most important is when this happens, I mean, the Seawolves got a 13 seed last year when they advanced to the NCAA tournament. You know, could they be higher? I mean, Washington State was a nine. Wow. <laughs> it's, it is really exciting times, especially for this program. You know, and there are questions, too, you know, coming in, actually Langford, having, you know, some of these new players transfer in, like uh, Earl Scott, for example, from the prior season, obviously uh, Quirley coming in as well. And, you know, these players are producing. They're just meshing so well. And it's just, I think, just so much great chemistry going on between everyone, like the veterans, like India Pagan, you know, players like 
Annie Warren stepping up in their roles as scoring producers, or let's got the same thing, Gigi Gonzalez, you know, as an underclass woman doing the same. So, you know, there's really a lot of great things going on. And what makes the Stony Brook team so tough, especially to compete against defensively, is that they got so many scores and so many different ways to score. And their triangle, you know, motion offense, there's so many moving pieces that it's so tough to, you know, try to decide who you want to target, who you think is going to get the ball, because it can go to so many places, inside and outside. Now we can turn to the men, because... Yeah. They had a nice win Saturday night, and they ended up uh, beating the uh, St. Francis Peacocks. And they are right now right behind, again, non-conference schedule, 7-4 and four record after a rough start. UMass Lowell is actually ahead of them, and, of course, taking a picture of what UMass Lowell has been doing. Uh, they beat Riviere, and they beat Dayton, lost to Oklahoma State, lost to UMass, lost to Brown in the Ivy League, and lost to BU, okay? The big wins, they beat GW, A-10. Uh, let's see, they beat Fisher, what big deal, it's a D3 school, I believe, or it used to be anyway. Uh, Merrimack win there, and MCLA, I'm not even sure who they are. Sacred Heart, 70-62, that was today. And uh, and there you go. They, they will have face St. Francis of Brooklyn on uh, the 23rd, and then their Marquis kicks in against Binghamton at Binghamton on January 2nd. So, again, that schedule may be about equal to Stony Brook's, maybe not quite as tough because you, you throw away the first two losses at George Mason and Kansas, and the Seawolves look pretty good, okay? The only really bad loss in their schedule, there are two bad losses, I should say, other than those two. Fairfield was a game that they should have, they, they lost by five. And Wagner, they were just not there. But they've won four straight since. St. Peter's, they won on a blocked shot and ended up stealing that one, 64 to 63. And uh, that was rather impressive leading up to the Florida game here. Yeah, this was a game, too, that was falling out of Stony Brook's grasp. To me, this is one of the should wins. And, you know, it was definitely a bit closer than anticipated. Before to uh, Stevenson Moore's game-saving block, Seawolves had to go on a 14-4 run just to put themselves up by 7 with a minute 56 to go. And, you know, shooting wasn't necessarily there, especially in that first half. They were down by as many as 12. But in the second half, you started to see guys wake up. Julio Jenkins, for example, played tremendously in that second half. He led the game with 15 points. And eight of those came in the second half alone. Or sorry, 13 of those came in the second half alone. So he was doing all of his damage then. And it's like once they found that opening, they were able to just continue exploiting it through him as he was able to finish with his eighth uh, game in double figures this season. So eighth straight game in double figures, ninth this season. So Jenkins set the pace for 15 points. Tyke Green, 12, and Anthony Roberts, 11. But Green had a good game, just missed out on a double-double. But he was big in keeping them in there, scoring. His, did a lot of his scoring in the first half and really rebounding of the ball as well. You know, For Stony Brook, they struggled shooting. They only went 34% from the floor, 19 from three-point range. What kept them in, Matt, was the free throws. Because once they started forcing them, they started clawing their way back into the game and ultimately finished going 15 of 19 from the charity strike. 
Now, neither team really shot that well from three. Five for 26 for the Seawolves, so they shot worse. But mm-hmm. five for 20 was not much better on St. Peter's part. But they got the shots where they needed to, and Green went five for 10. Jenkins went five for 19, and Roberts went four for 10. So they did manage to, you know, pull it out. And, of course, by the slimmest of margins. Uh, yeah, also, their first half shooting was rather abysmal uh, mm-hmm. because they went one for 16 uh, from three-point range in the first half and then four for 10 respectable in the second, but nine for 34 overall. So yeah, it was bad. It, it was especially concerning to me when you go back to Tuesday's game against Central Connecticut State. They won 87-67. It's because early on in the game, they scored 18 unanswered points and ultimately took a 22-7 lead pretty early on in the contest. Jenkins was a big part of that because he scored eight minutes within the first few minutes, and he finished with a game-high 21 points. And the team was firing on all cylinders, especially from three-point range. They The team set a career highs with 34 field goals made and 14 three-pointers overall. So, you know, it, it was definitely concerning. You go into the next game thinking you can ride on that momentum, and through the first 25 minutes of the game, you know, there's just no shooting for the Seawolves. Now you have this game that is looming large coming up because you thought they were done with the uh, big schools with Kansas, but no. <laughs> they got Florida, SEC school, ranked 20th, I believe, last we checked. Yep. yep. And, uh, again, a ranked team. But at Florida, at Gainesville, nice trip, don't get me wrong. Uh, Johnny Wincott is actually making the trip down there, and uh, he's going to be broadcasting the game for us. But well, we're, we're going to have it on the air, which is the uh, the most important part. But uh, it's one of those games that it's not going to be necessarily an accurate portrayal of where the Seawolves stand right now. I think right now they're in pretty good position uh, once the American East starts out, especially because they're starting out against NJIT and, and Hartford. NJIT is a budding rivalry, as we let's, know. Let's start on Hartford UMBC. Oh, I'm looking at the wrong schedule here. Okay, Hartford <laughs> UMBC. But even then, Hartford, you know, right. the same yeah, problem the with, them, still with the there. men as it is for the yeah. women. Yeah, for Hartford, you know, they still got that, you know, tournament loss fresh in their mind from a couple seasons ago, which was the last kind of, you know, regular home game before the pandemic wiped everything out in the full season. There's still... You know, a couple of players there that definitely remember that. And it's, it's a Sonnybrook team for me, you know, for Florida, as you said, it's a great tune-up. And I think it's just big that they managed to get that consistency, you know, in order. And the team that was playing on Wednesday, you know, shows up for the game against Florida, so on and so forth. And obviously not going to be shooting as good, but still, you know, you don't want to see as abysmal as they were yesterday. But it's interesting, too, with this Florida team, because to me, these are two teams kind of still looking for that identity and that consistency, because Florida, early on in the season, they were great, and because they were so well defensively and had that team-first mentality. But, you know, recently, they've been really struggling in that set, but still playing good enough basketball to win, because they're good at forcing turnovers, scoring in transition. Mm -hmm. So, we can look beyond that. I mean, the Seawolves are concentrating primarily on Florida. But they do have one remaining non-conference game, which would be next Wednesday. This Wednesday is Florida. Next Wednesday is Farmingdale. And then Hartford on Sunday, January 2nd, which seems to be the day everybody starts in the American East on the men's side. They should win that one by a lot, considering 
Last two times they faced Farmingdale, Stony Brook won 91-42, 91-44. So that's a game where if they're performing like they did against Wagner and not like how they're performing against Central Connecticut, you know, big red flags entering conference season. Well, yeah, Matt Wagner was a big red flag. And I think it had a lot to do with that win against Hofstra because uh, Hofstra, of course, had a long winning streak against the Seawolves. It would be five in a row, if I recall correctly. And the Seawolves just dominated end-to-end on that game back on December 8th, uh, which was a couple of weeks ago. Okay, so uh, America East, of course, kicks in, and then it's America East the rest of the way after Hartford. But we are at that impasse time with uh, basketball. We're going into the Christmas break, and we're going to come out of it. And this goes for just about everybody in college basketball. And and uh, even some schools like the MAC, they are, they're already underway in conference. And even the Big East is underway, too. Yeah, it's going to be fun. I think that level and predictability is still there. Obviously, you know, seeing these Tony Brook programs, major programs, doing, you know, big things on the women's side, defeating a couple of power conference schools, and like the win today. On the men's side, getting a big win against the Hofstra team, which has been playing pretty good aside from the loss, and are predicted to place pretty highly in the CAA polls. You know, it's exciting times for sure for these programs, and especially, you know, the men's one, or the past couple seasons where they were really missing that extra gear that they've seemed to find so far through most of the season. So it's going to be exciting, but, you know, the unpredictability is still there with so many pieces, both in and out of these programs controls, like injuries or like missing time because of COVID-19 precautions or games having to be postponed or rescheduled or whatever's going to go on in, in this season. Find something made out of wood to knock on because oh, yes. it, when the Seawolves have encountered the problems, and we, as you said with the women, that wasn't on the Seawolves end. That was on Hofstra's end. Hofstra right. suspended that game, not uh, Stony Brook. So that well, got them scrambling for the uh, for the game with Washington State. Marist. And they did lose that Marist game, but that was Marist too. That wasn't yeah. that wasn't Stony Brook. Right. So. The Seawolves, so far, keep your fingers crossed, have been very fortunate from that point of view. They're playing as projected, and that's good, you know, playing as advertised. Because we've seen in the past with pro- other programs, football and uh, men's soccer come to mind, where they're predicted to finish pretty highly, and they don't look too strong entering conference season, and they fall even flatter. Exactly. So, as we said, the non-conference, you take a look at the, the standings on AmericaEast.com, and... You see UMass Lowell in front, Stony Brook and Vermont with identical 7-4 and four records. just want to go over Vermont a little bit because they're always a problem for the men. And they lost a relatively close one, down, lost by 11 to number 21 Maryland back on November 13th. Oakland University in Michigan, they lost by two. Uh, UNCG, they lost by three. Uh, lost by 10 to Providence. That wasn't such a bad loss against a Big East opponent, which is a pretty good Big East opponent, and just beat Brown. Their game against Northeastern was scheduled for today. was canceled. Uh, guess why? And uh, they have one more non-conference game on Wednesday against Colgate, and then they will begin their conference schedule after Christmas against UAlbany. Yeah, and- they're, they're up there with the Seawolves, Matt. You know, 7-4, as we said overall. But to me, I think the big thing for the Catamounts is their defense because they're playing these great teams and so far they got the best defense 
in the conference. You know, they're holding their opponents to under 60 per game while they're able to score 65. And Seawolves, again, it's, it's non-conference schedule, but for the Seawolves to score 72 and while give up 73, you know, it kind of goes to show that you, you're not, you're already not taking games against Vermont lightly, but you know, they're going to come in with a really good defense and you're going to put in a lot of work to hit your season averages so far. Another team that, of course, has been a perennial thorn in Stony Brook's side, Albany, on the men's side and on the women's side. But in particular for the men, they played a pretty tough schedule as well and lost their first five games to the likes of Towson, LaSalle, Harvard, Eastern Kentucky, and the Kentucky Wildcats. And uh, before finally getting, pulling out a win, two-point win against Eastern Illinois uh, Thanksgiving week, then they dropped another game to Kansas State and Yale, and then Columbia and BC wins there, lost to Niagara, and and they have a couple of uh, non-conference games before they start off against Vermont, Lehigh and Bucknell, and uh, Albany you know plays the regional powers. I mean, they've played Syracuse probably more often than any other American school, but they didn't do it this year. But again, you, I mean, you look at those schools, and another perfect case of you know throw away the non-conference record. They can be pretty tough too. Yeah, for them, for sure, it's definitely about building that chemistry and kind of dictating, you know, what play style they want to force. And, you know, just looking at this team, they really want to work inside and really want to really run the offense, especially through Devondre Perry, who's off to a pretty good start, 12 points per game, shooting just around 48%. And he's doing a good job, especially working inside, not taking too many three-pointers. It's been Matt Cerruti, who's been their three-point specialist. He's shooting 45% from the field so you know they've definitely been working on that offensively as well as really crashing the boards which i think is going to play a pivotal part in turning some extremely close games and it's something you know the sony sony brook doesn't really excel at outside of a guy like tyke green but if sony brook has their threes going on they don't have to worry too much about it because it's going in the basket the only thing that bothers me about this men's team right now is that you know we're talking about a player who, was, who hits 45% from three, you uh, hear about teams that are absolutely dominant from beyond the arc or dominant down low. There isn't one aspect of Stony Brook's game where they're necessarily dominant. Everything has to be on for them to win. Now, fortunately, that happens a lot, but it's not like they can ride anything, if you know what I mean. I mean, there, there are some nights when they might be able to ride the threes, but... You can't do it every week. You can't do it every night. And it may be that Albany can. But but on the other hand, if you're the Seawolves, you just you know plug up the perimeter and you know see if the shots fall then. But the most important thing here is that they're balanced. You can say they're balanced in a good way and in a bad way. They're balanced in a good way because they can beat you many different ways, but they're balanced in a bad way because they can blow the game many different ways. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think more so they're taking definitely a lot more three-pointers now than I think I've ever seen them take. I think even in the Jimmy Warney days, they weren't you know taking and making this many three-pointers. 35% from the field so far this season and lead the conference of 100 through their first 11 games, along with UMBC. But, you know, I agree. That they, I, I still like these lineups they're putting out there for the most part. And I think the issue, too, is they had to adjust with Elijah Olani missing time the past six or seven games because of lower body injury. So they've had to adjust, and you're losing a key slasher like that, a key guy who really worked the inside. Obviously, it leaves a hole in that offense, and they've been having to adjust around that by relying more on the three-point 
three-point guys like Frankie Policelli, you know, like uh, Tyke Green or Jill Jenkins. Well, you know what? Stony Brook's relationship with the three-point shot has been kind of a love-hate over the years because I remember, well, in the old building, before the uh, Island Federal Credit Union Arena was renovated, uh, the lighting wasn't that great, and the Seawolves always had trouble from three, but for some strange reason, the visiting team shot well against them. <laughs> and, you know, Navy, I think, rained like 13 threes and a half once against them, and the Seawolves couldn't hit the ocean that game. And we it would leave everybody scratching their heads. How come the the visitors can hit threes and Stony Brook can't? And it, that went on for years. And yeah. You know, it, again, it's become a bit more balanced, but to say that this is a team that has lived and died on the three would not be true. They never have. It's been part of their history that the three-point shot has been inconsistent for them. Yeah, I think, if anything, now is really the first time you're starting to see this team aim more heavily on three-pointers. I thought you saw it last year as well, but they did, really didn't have the pieces to do it. And as well, you know, they really, I thought, really struggled in that sense because... You know, just of the screen game, the pick-and-roll game, it just wasn't there working for them last season. I think now they're doing a lot better job at creating space, especially on the pick-and-roll or pick-and-pop, and is getting those guys who weren't able to be open over the past few years or getting guys in positions where you they really wouldn't be, you know, on the wing or around the perimeter. You know, it was going back to those old Sunnybrook teams. You know, they had big guys, like six, ten, seven-foot guys, like, obviously, guys like Jimmy Warney, even afterwards, Mo Gee, uh, they still have Alex Christie, who's, I think, their lone, their tallest guy, their lone seven-footer. But, you know, go, go back to the Sunbrook offenses, and they rely a lot on those guys to work down in the post or inside the perimeter to make shots. Now, they think, is where they're starting to space out, give guys the room and opportunities to create shots, either through iso ball or through threes. Well, I'll tell you something, just going back to the women very, very briefly. The one thing I noticed is that the Seawolves were so not attached to the three-point shot that a lot of the players taking outside shots weren't even looking for the line. And you know, you, you know how somebody, a lot of people take a pass, making sure they be behind the line, step back, yeah. and then take the shot. Seawolves Wolves were taking seventeen footers all over the place, yeah. and I, they didn't seem to care whether it was for yeah. good for two or three. Yeah, that's the thing, too, with Coach Langford's system is that, you know, it was like that as well under McCombs, Coach McCombs. But it, that's the thing is, you know, they're more concerned about getting the bucket as opposed to, you know, how much it is. Because, again, it goes back to stacking up those points, you know. It really doesn't necessarily matter if it's two or three if you're able to go on a 12-2 run like this women's team has been consistently able to do throughout a lot of the season. You know, they, they're able to score from so many different ways because... Again, these players and guards in particular can score from so many positions in and out of the arc. And not only that, but players like Gigi Gonzalez and Earl Scott, Annie Warren are good at drawing fouls as well when they cut inside. So, you know, you're tough. It's already tough having to determine, all right, is Gonzalez going to pop or is she going to roll down baseline on the screen? And when she comes under and beats you, by the time you get a hand on the ball, you know, you're making contact with her. She's making the shot, some ridiculous, you know, circus shot going in and gets the foul. So that's really how they've been doing a lot of the damage this season, and it's what makes them one of the better teams in the NCAA. Okay, so uh, it's been nothing but 
basketball for the past couple of weeks. The swimming team last had an event on December 5th, and they won't be back in action until January. And, again, nothing but basketball from here. And just taking a look at the baseball schedule, and they will begin, as they usually do, down south. Uh, their first six games will be in Lake Charles, Louisiana, three-game set against the McNeese State. And then they go to South Florida in Tampa uh, for the final weekend in February. Their home opener will be at Joe Nathan Field on March 2nd, weather permitting. There could be a foot of snow on the ground. Who knows? But, <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> but then they take another trip down south to Western Carolina in Cullowee, North Carolina. And then back up for to back up north to Fordham, then back down south for a weekend. Excuse me, a weekend series against Old Dominion down in Norfolk, Virginia, and then finally a nice long homestand on the day starting the day before St. Patrick's Day, March sixteenth. That will be a midweek game, a Wednesday game against Iona, and America East kicks in the day after St. Patrick's Day with a three game set against UMass Lowell. So. America East, they, it springs into action kind of early and then, of course, continues all the way to the uh, third week in May. Uh, the, where they, this is great. They finish their regular season home against NJIT. <laughs> I agree. You, can't, you really couldn't script it better than that. You know, it, it's, it's a great callback, I think, to, to last season where it wasn't, you know, the last series of the week, but it was the last home series between these two teams, and we remember how heated that was, ultimately carrying into the conference tournament, and yeah, you know, we spoke with the guys, there's still a lot of bad blood, you know, between both of these teams, especially on the Stony Brook side, feeling like, you know, it should have been them going on the NCAA to the NCAA tournament, and thankfully, I'll say this, I'm I'm really happy that the American East went back and it booked its tournament schedule from Wednesdays to Saturdays with a Sunday as a possible fill-in date. You know, that I thought that was the first thing I checked for in the schedule. So when I saw that, you know, I, I was able to think to take a deep breath because I feel like a lot of these players did and realized, all right, we're, we're not going to get screwed out of this one like we were last time. Well, the most important thing is lesson learned. Yeah. Yeah. Finally, somebody's paying attention saying, okay, <laughs> we're not going to let that happen again. Uh, and, agreed. Yeah. And, Seawolves, that was because, hey, their chances were good as long as they kept kept dragging it out that they were going to uh, get past NJIT. I mean, this is, like I said, budding rivalry now, and it's starting to spill over, I think, to the other sports. Oh, it's already spilled over. Yeah. yeah. There's no question of that. And, but, you but know, the baseball, baseball, there's no level. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's definitely uncomparable. And, you know, it, it goes back again to, you know, just – I think as well with NGIT, they were a formidable challenge for sure, you know, because those were tight games, tighter than usual, than a lot of the Stony Brook baseball games were, you know, especially at the start of the conference season. So it's not like, you know, you got a really bad team trying to bring down a good team. You know, these are still two good teams and two teams I project that are probably going to be among the top of the coaches' polls once those are released next year. But, you know, there's definitely a lot of bad blood carrying over. And, it's it's going to be interesting, too, seeing what the playoff scenarios are like. Because odds are they're both probably going to be vying for that top spot come May 19th. And, you know, we saw how bad blood, how much bad blood there was already. It's probably going to get 
exacerbated even more, you know, that weekend. Well, they also will be in Newark at NJIT on April 29th, April 30th, and May 1st. So they will have played each other once before when they finally get to the final regular season weekend. But the important probably find something th- new to beef about. <laughs> yes, and nice thing about it though is because NJIT is based in Newark. You know, if we don't have lacrosse in the way, we might be able to get a game in there. Right. But uh, speaking yeah, of think, which, lacrosse well, is not say, announced, have they? No, 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 you're not. But okay. same look again at baseball. Rest of the baseball schedule. To me, I feel like this non-conference slate is is more winnable than usual, and it's a mix of just how good this team has been over the past couple of years. But also, you know, I just looked at the names that stand out, and really, to me, the only two that really caught my eye were number one, Old Dominion. They ranked 14th last season overall. They had a great season last year, 44 and 16, went pretty far in the conference tournament. Now they're going to be. That's going to be a great test for the Seawolves on March 11th through March 13th, weather permitting, obviously. But you know, going out there for a three-game series, you know, it's going to be interesting if they could produce a game similarly to the series they had against Clemson a couple of seasons ago where, yeah, they lost all three, but they were still really tight games. You know, they're only one or two run games and, you know, had a pitch or a hit gone a different way. You know, looking at Sonny Brook pulling off an upset like that. And the other game I'll talk about too is against Fairfield, who had a great 2020 season, finished 39 and five overall. So again, Setting up a nice – well, I remember talking to Matt Sink about this many years ago. And over the years – and you get a feel for it over time, naturally, and he's been doing it for 30. But setting up the non-conference schedule is a delicate balance, particularly in baseball, because what you don't want to see happen is them dig themselves too deep a hole. Again, it's right. all about the conference schedule in the America East in every sport. Okay, they're not sending out large bids, and you got to win your conference in order to get to the NCAA. And I don't care how good you are otherwise. 2011 was a perfect example. The Seawolves were basically actually one pitcher better than the College World Series team, but got knocked out in the, the conference tournament, and that was and their season was done. They had Nick Tropiano, and he was the only one who got a win in that conference tournament. So that's the, that's the reality. And the, mm-hmm. But there have been years in the past where Coach Sink has said that, you know, sometimes I think I might have scheduled too tough a non-conference schedule because no matter – even yet, no matter who you play – if you're going into the conference schedule with you know a really bad like three and eight record or something like that, your confidence level still isn't that high. And he thinks about that and the way he balances his schedule. And you know he schedules games that number one you have to find people to play you, and number two you got to have warm weather uh, facilities wherever you can. So Lake Charles, Louisiana, and Tampa, Florida, are your first two road locations, but. You're also looking at teams that you can compete with and that aren't going to you know, steamroll you. And I think that he's found that here, but he's got some tough ones. Like you said, Old Dominion is no that's, joke. That's their toughest for sure, yeah. yeah. Although, to be fair, McNeese um, State last time, they used to two teams only faced off once back in 2017, and McNeese State won 18-2. So. Right. <laughs> so you got to be careful yeah. with them, too. But they invited them back, which is good. Uh, yeah. and that, let's talk about the two for a little bit. Matt Saint starting his 32nd 
per, a year as Sony Brook head coach, manager, whatever they like. Yeah. An impressive run from him, for sure. And the fact that he's been consistently great throughout. The one thing that always stood out with all of us who followed him from the beginning, 1991, uh, is that he wanted the D3 level. He wanted the D2 level, and he definitely wanted the D1 level. So every time the program upgraded, it kept pace. That was not so easy for a lot of the other programs to do when they were transitioning into D1. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the programs got beat up pretty good, but not the baseball team. And the baseball team got into you know competing with the uh, the big name schools very quickly, and. Yeah, you know, of course, culminating the 2012 College World Series run, which they've you know yet to duplicate. But you know, the bottom line is, as I keep saying, is you go one year to the next among the eight participants in the College World Series, and maybe one or two carry over from the year before, largely because of the draft. Okay, mm-hmm. you're going to get if your team is good, it's going to get gutted by yeah. <laughs> by the uh, Major League Baseball uh, first year player draft. So you're you know. If you're loaded, you know, you got people behind you, you got freshmen behind you to take over for the juniors, that's great, but not everybody does. Not everybody can do that consistently, even the teams with multiple national championships. But the most important thing here is that the Seawolves are on an upswing, and they're building up, and uh, I think that, you know, the the confidence level with this team is pretty high going into this season. And, uh, you know, we're going to be, I think, very happy with the results. I think we're going to have a lot of fun doing these games. Agreed. Agreed. And softball, I think, is right there with them. Honestly, looking at two schedules of the two, I felt softball was probably the harder of the two, even though I think the toughest opponent between both teams is going to be 14th ranked Old Dominion. And it's funny, too, because even – Softball, they got six opponents within the top 70 of RPI. So, Lindbergh's in the top 80. So, there's a lot of teams that are, you know, right there with the Seawolves. And it's going to be a great test for them in that sense to, you know, get a feel for, you know, how much they improved from last season. Can they continue to keep climbing up their ranks? Can they continue to keep developing these players? As well as, honestly, to me, the biggest thing I think is just getting them better prepared to compete against UMBC. Because to me, the Retrievers and the Seawolves are going to be the two favorites to make it to the America East Tournament, considering they've done it the past two, three seasons. And it's gone the Retrievers' way in each season. So, you know, it's going to be interesting for sure, you know, seeing a schedule where it's like, all right, instead of seeing Stony Brook versus UMBC three or four times a season, you know, you're getting it about 12 to 15 times. Well, the softball season, well, in softball, they have tournaments. And it will begin with the Florida International Tournament. They will be the host school. And it will include Drexel, South Dakota, Brown, and South Dakota. In addition, South Dakota, again, they'll put face them twice in addition to Stony Brook as a participant. And that will begin last weekend in February. Now, the following weekend, they go to San Diego for the San Diego Classic. That features San Diego, of course, Utah State, Yale, and Long Beach State and San Diego State. So that's a pretty good matchup there. Then they go to South Florida, USF, and they, South Florida being the host, UMass, Ohio State, and Army in addition. And then finally, uh, they come back up north and uh, they take on Fordham in a Wednesday game and then another tournament, Rutgers. But this one's going to be in Piscataway, New Jersey. 
Fairfield, Drexel, St. Peter's, and Holy Cross. They don't see the light of day at home. They've got Hofstra, Fairfield, and St. John's on the road. Well, sort of on the road. They're local. But they're not at uh, University Field until uh, March 31st, the Thursday doubleheader against Sacred Heart. And then a couple of days later, they get ready to take on Maine for three games, doubleheader on Saturday and a single game on Sunday, and the America East kicks in. But mm-hmm. they're still not done with non-conference because they sneak in games at St. John's, Seton Hall, and Providence. Big East week, essentially, the first week yeah. in April. And then UMBC with a doubleheader. This is a really weird setup here because UMBC is a doubleheader on Wednesday, April 13th, and that's it. And then they've got Binghamton for three games over the weekend. But how does this work? Because they're at UMBC for that doubleheader. And then they get UMBC for a single game on a Wednesday, April 27th. And that's it. That's a really weird, that's a really weird setup there. I'm wondering if there's something missing. But anyway, uh, that's where they stand. And then UAlbany for three games, UMass Lowell for three games, and the American East Conference, of course, starts a week before the men do. Actually, two weeks before, May 11th through May 14th. And uh, the winner, of course, advances to the NCAA tournament. Last time they both went the same year, I believe, was 2008, when they both went to Arizona State. Yeah, it's been a while for Sony Brook uh, softball. <laughs> And it's been close the past couple seasons. But that's when you know? both baseball and softball went. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and they went to the same location. I remember Jeff Bernstein did the, uh, the softball games at Arizona State, and then the following week I did the baseball games. <laughs> that was yeah, interesting. It, yeah, it, it still is, too, because, again, both these teams, past few seasons, they've still been good. Really, yeah, good, especially in America East, the men's team being really good, going on to several tournament appearances, you know, following that historic 2012 run. You know, softball hasn't really seen the same success in the postseason, despite playing pretty good during the regular season over the past several years. You know, their, their best shot was back in 2020, where they started, you know, 14, and it was about 13, 14 games on the road in mm-hmm. tournaments, and they went 10 and 4. So, you know, before everything got shut down. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's going to be interesting seeing this team. You know, they're, they've been close, but they haven't been able to clinch it and for both of these teams it's gonna be interesting seeing who steps up no chris hamilton no jared milch for baseball no melissa robert for softball so you're, you're gonna be seeing new aces out there as well as new sluggers for these teams and still both teams are uh, picked to finish high in, in the uh, conference and uh you can't really rule them out in either case so again lots of fun coming up in the spring and we're gonna have a lot of overlap too because as we said the basketball teams have high expectations as well, so we're going to have to pick and choose because being only one frequency, we can't be two places at once, but we'll we'll try to do our best. And, uh, of course, wsb.fm slash sports, the latest schedules, and uh, as soon as we get one approved, we will post it. But uh, and we'll also be uh, ready with our you know heavy weather gear uh, for when the both teams come home finally. But as we said, the women, the softball team, they do not play at home until March 31st. The weather will be slightly better anyway. While the uh, baseball team sneaks in a home game on March 2nd, which, as we said, could still have snow on the ground. Here on the sports section, Matt Mike, which Ken Furman here until midnight. 
And this is WSB Stony Brook. But most importantly, you can join in the conversation as well. And the number to call is 631-632-9872. 631-632-WSB. Anything you want to talk about, what we just talked about for the first hour, as far as the Seawolves are concerned, uh, talk about the malaise era of New York football in particular, uh, what happened today with the Jets and the Giants, neither team won, or talk about teams that actually do have a chance, like the New Orleans Saints, who now lead the Tampa Bay Buccaneers by a score of 9 to nothing, with 4.51 left in the fourth quarter. First of all, there is a rule, an unwritten rule, but followed just the same, that you do not shut out Tom Brady. Has Tom Brady ever been shut out? I think he'd have to be. I have no clue when the last time that was. Certainly, that I mean, I got to Google that. I'll tell Just you that. ask it. Has Tom Brady ever been shut out? It's funny. The last time he was shut out was uh, last year. Well, he was almost shut out. But oh, nine in his career. But nine. The, they had to be. Okay, now we're going to. Now we got to look. Okay. Well, I was going to say, through three quarters, the last time his teams have been shut out were when they faced the Saints. Now, remember last year through three quarters, Saints were up oh, was it third, 28 nothing through three quarters, end up winning 38-3. No, nah, that can't be right. Nine shutouts. Is, oh, he's given nine shutout, shutouts in his career. Oh, here we go. Two career shutout losses. against 2016 against the Bills, 2006 his first, and one of only two against Miami. So he has never been shut out outside of, well, yeah, outside of a non-divisional foe. It won't change because Tampa and New Orleans are in the same division. But, Both away games. Yeah. So that Never is... Never been shot at home, which is even yeah. more impressive. <laughs> so New England at Miami 2006. Wasn't that his rookie year? No, his rookie no, no. year was 2000, 1999, 2000. No. Oh, my God. I keep forgetting how far go, back <laughs> it goes. But, 50, yeah, 2006 is 15 years ago. But, uh, yeah. yeah, I keep forgetting how long he's been in the, in the league and... He's already been a two, three-time champion through uh, 2006. That's right. Okay, so... <laughs> that was his first career peak. But I'm getting to the second one, which came in the mid-2010s, as well as the recent one, which is in Tampa. <laughs> yep. Okay, Saints and Tom Brady, the worst loss of his career. And that was uh, way only a couple of years ago, but that was 38 well, last year, to 3. I think, yeah. Yeah, it was yeah last, that was last year on Sunday. 2020, well. yeah. Yeah. Okay, 38-3. to 35-point loss to the Saints is the largest of Tom Brady's career. The previous record was a 31-0 shutout versus the Bills in 2003. So twice in his career has Tom Brady been shut out. But there's still some time left in this game, and there's 355 left in it, and Tampa Bay has the ball. So, you know what? This is where all these betting houses come into play because you know if you open up one of them, you're going to see you know, what the odds are on Brady scoring on this drive, whatever it is. Unfortunately, I don't have the monitor on in front of me, so I don't know anything about it. He's at third at 10 with 347 left to go in Buccaneers' own zone. Okay, uh, so... A lot of room to work with. You know, they're yeah. around their 30. So. so what kind of odds do you get that he scores on this drive? You because, never count. You never count them out. You know, definitely still fifty-fifty. Even though realistically, it should be like eighty-five to fifteen. <laughs> because but, the, the great it, thing it's about harder it. too. It's harder to, to map because they're without 
of Chris Godwin and Mike Evans. Both of them went down with injury earlier in this contest. Godwin took a really bad hit. So, you know, your best receiver right now is Rob Gronkowski. Well, that's not necessarily a bad option to have, but the fact of the matter is he hasn't done anything all day either. Well, as we're speaking, Matt, Brady just threw a pick to a defensive back for New Orleans. So New Orleans gets the ball Uh-oh. in Bucks territory with 340 to go. Garner Johnson with the pick. And Brady has been getting cooked all day. Which we got to say, you got to tip your hat to Dennis Allen. Not only is he a great defensive coach, number one, but he's filling in in the head coaching role for Sean Payton, who tested positive for COVID on Friday and immediately entered uh, NFL protocols. So his defense, I haven't seen a better defense performance, uh, I think, any day in the NFL. And that includes what the Cowboys did against the Giants not even 12 hours ago. (laughs) I am thoroughly impressed with the job they've done so far because, as you said, Brady threw a pick. And not only that, they've been, he hasn't had good field position to work with either. No. Uh, He started from the three on this drive. Yeah, that's right. Yes. And uh, again, you don't see this very often. 24-45, 24-45, his first pick has no touchdowns, obviously, 190 yards. And Taysom Hill, 13-27 for 154, and wow. Uh, to be honest, for me, I- I'm not surprised. The panel for the NBC uh, broadcast, every one of them, minus Drew Brees, picked the Buccaneers to win. I thought that was foolish, because we saw last year in the regular season how good the Saints looked. You know, even take out Drew Brees, the defense still dominated against Tampa Bay in the regular season. It was the postseason where Brady finally got their number. So I'm not necessarily surprised that the Saints are winning. I predicted them to win, but they're winning 9-0 because their offense really hasn't been doing too much either. And with Taysom Hill you know, under the pocket, it's really been a lot of RPOs and a lot of quarterback options you know, to mix with his passing. You know, they have less total yards and obviously less passing yards than Tampa Bay does is New Orleans. But that doesn't stop them from uh, getting the those field goals. You know, I'm looking at the uh, – I'm trying to get the box score here, but NFL.com, I think everybody's looking at this thing yeah. because it's Brett, running so slow. Brett Meyer has been the, the only scorer for either team today. Three of three, including a long of 42, responsible for all nine points. Well, you know what? That's usually the mark of a team that has no offense and a great defense. You're like those. That's the Saints, yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is pretty much the Saints. But and, and it's not fair to say they're no offense. But they got Alvin Kamara, who oh, today's being held in check. But and Marquez Callaway, he has six receptions over 100 yards catching. It's just that they haven't had that quarterback to succeed Drew Brees. And they thought it was Winston. He he was living it up towards the start of the season, but he's been hurt. And now, obviously, you go with Hill and it's not working out. Tom Brady just threw his Microsoft Surface into the trash and broke it on national TV. That'll make the headlines. Well, I'll tell you, one guy's having a good day. He's at Callaway. My God, 112 yards reset on six uh, six catches. So yeah. that's pretty much That's the only guy in three figures in anything, really, except for uh, yeah. you know the but quarterbacks. This, as you said, this Saints team, they've been doing a great job applying pressure defensively. Four sacks on Tom Brady. I am absolutely thoroughly impressed with the job they've done so far. Now, of course, it really doesn't mean a hell. Well, first of all, it's a two-score game no matter what you do. Uh, but 
as long as they don't turn the ball over and they run clock and they get at least right. one first down on this drive, they can pretty much sew it up. Yeah. And, Tampa, uh, sorry, New Orleans just punted it away with 3.17 to go, but uh-oh. Tampa's going to be actually roughing a kicker, which is the worst time to make that first down. penalty. Automatic first for New Orleans. They get the ball uh, inside Tampa. Tampa territory with 317 and no timeouts remaining for the Bucks. Oh, that's not good. And I, I like like I just said, they get the first down and they can pretty much sew it up because they can easily burn most of that 324 even if they don't score on it. Uh, matter of fact, they don't want to score too quickly, naturally. Uh, looking at the rest of the... Well, we do have to talk about Dallas. And Dallas, it's again improving the ten and four, twenty-one to six win. No surprises whatsoever coming from MetLife Stadium. Uh, the Giants not able to score a touchdown, a couple of field goals, and Dallas dominate pretty much end to end on this one. Yeah, honestly, today your Giants look like the worst team in the NFL, and uh, they're among the worst. Think that's a- no, I think today, Matt, they look the worst. And the reason why is you look at some of these other teams, you know, that is record-wise. Look at teams that were worse than them. Obviously, the Lions. They just beat the best team record-wise and offense-wise in the NFL in the Arizona Cardinals. Right. So <laughs> so they're out. Look at the Texans and the Jaguars. The Jaguars got rid of their abysmal head coach in Urban Meyer. And I want to apologize to every Jacksonville fan out there saying he would have made a great head coach. I was wrong. I was foolish, not as foolish as he was during his tenure, but you know they thankfully made the decision to remove him after some unbelievable, you know, allegations and actions on his part, allegedly. Well, and that would get him fired from a college job. That's a any job, yeah. Kicking your own employees allegedly is uh, unbelievable. The gall he had to allegedly do that, you know, especially to one of his subordinates. It's as well as other alleged things like. Just completely disrespecting his own coaching staff. If you're a coach and not taking your coaching staff seriously, how are your players going to respect you and take them seriously? Well, you also got to remember, with your coaching staff, if you don't like your coaching staff, you hired them. That's true. (laughs) It's unbelievable he allegedly had them defend their resumes when he was the one who picked them because of said resume. Wait a minute. You're defending your resume? I defended my resume already on my job interview. Exactly. Thank you very much. (laughs) Exactly. It's not their fault that you decided to sign them because of their history and resume they submitted when they wanted to join the team, allegedly. So that uh, it's just unbelievable. No, well, just... I'll tell you something, and this has always been the case for every, for professional sports as a general rule. A pro job is a pro job no matter how bad it might be. It's rare that uh, a, a coach or an assistant coach will turn down a pro job I mean, if there's a better one that they know they're going to get, okay, fine. Or if they like where they are, okay, fine. But rarely do they, if they're not in the pros, rarely do they refuse an opportunity to get in the pros, which is why, you know, the Washington football team has coaches at all. Right. <laughs> you know, working for Snyder. But, yes. uh, but the, the whole point, there are two tracks in coaching, and it's not unique to football. It's really the same in every sport. It is rare that a coach excels in both collegiate and pro. Larry Brown is the exception, not the rule. And of mm-hmm. course, his success in basketball. Uh, right. you know, for football, you, we kind of saw it in Pete Carroll. 
And the Harbaugh brothers. Well, Pete Carroll was only okay in the NFL and great in college. Got a, he got a ring, though. Yeah. But... Now you got him to two Super Bowls. No. Yeah, I, he's, I, again, I, I put him above okay. I put him at good. There aren't, and they've been a consistent playoff team until yeah, this year. <laughs> there aren't that many coaches no, who can do both. True. Now, Carroll... You can make the argument that he actually started out in the pros. He actually coached the Jets before he yeah, went to that's USC. That's another fair point, yeah. So <laughs> he was pretty much on the pro track. It really is when you're an assistant, let's say linebackers or running backs, you know, when you're an assistant to an assistant, okay, you can go in either direction. And if you look at the coaching records, uh, coaching resumes of a lot of these guys, they did. They bounced between college and pro. But once you get into the coordinator or head job, you are either on the pro track or the college track. And it is rare that you can succeed in both. Look at John Calipari, a disaster in the NBA. Rick Pitino, okay in the NBA when he was with the Knicks, but really excelled in college and preferred to go stay in college. Wow. Uh, I mean, you, Vince Lombardi, a pro all the way through, uh, never only worked in the pros, but... Uh, or Jimmy Johnson, another exception, who won mm. in both college and the pros, but largely because he ran his college teams like a pro team. Right. So yeah. <laughs> people have been making that argument as well. Yeah. Even uh, those, just going going back to the Jaguars, they look a lot. They look better without Meyer, even even in the loss. You know, through the first uh, thirty minutes of play, they were only losing a uh, twenty to was a twenty to ten. So they were. You know, a couple possessions or a couple scores, but still, it was still closer than most of their contests. And and they f- actually scored, uh, finished with mo- more total yards than Houston, who's another team who record-wise is worse than the Giants. But they got another win, and they played pretty good overall. David Mills going 19 of 30 with two touchdowns, and Brandon Cooks having two catching those two touchdown uh, passes, going for 100 yards on the day. So, you know, even then, I put both of those teams above the Giants. The Jets, who we're going to talk about later, I don't think they had a good first half. 17-10 yeah. That's true. They they played a good first half, and they just couldn't carry it into the second. Well, the I Vikings think didn't Miami play, had something to play by. for. That was the big thing. Oh, yeah. Thing. Yeah, and we'll get to that. But, you know, outside of the Buccaneers, who, by the way, no team leading the NFL in points has ever been shut out at home in December or January. And Tampa Bay averages about 31 points uh, per contest. So that's just an incredible testament to what New Orleans has been doing right now. But outside of Tampa, no other team in the league was held without a touchdown uh, during their games, except the Giants. And unlike a lot of these other teams, the Giants weren't even close to getting into, you know, that red zone territory for much of the game. I mean, it was literally an abysmal effort through and through. Well, get a load of this. They're at the two-minute warning, and New Orleans still has the ball. So that's a good sign. Uh, now, there are a couple of teams here, though. I saw the scores earlier today. I kind of wrote them off, took them for dead. Uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers, <laughs> one of those, and yeah. the we, Green we Bay Packers, it, another. Yeah, we were we were missing it. Well, I, I want to write the Packers for dead, number one. But we were kind of missing this, you know, these upsets, you know, happening over the, over the past few weeks. So there wasn't too many of that. No, the Lions won uh, definitely supersedes all. But no, as you said, focus on Pittsburgh first. You know, you're definitely right. This was a game where I felt like Tennessee really needed to win just to establish that consistency. Go back to last week's show when I said 
You know, Tennessee is a good team. They just need that consistency, and it just isn't there. And it's so tough to, you know, kind of judge where this Tennessee team has as, you know, they try to get a playoff spot. You know, looking at them so far, they're still good for third in the AFC, but they're falling down with that loss while the Steelers are on the rise on the bubble hanging in there, you know, with the win. You know, Tennessee, they play a lot of close games and ultimately they tend to hurt themselves, you know, a lot more than they do in terms of getting beat by their opponents. Ryan Tannehill, no passing touchdowns uh, or one rushing touchdown, but he only had 153 yards and threw a pick at a really pivotal moment. Yeah, and they've lost three of their last five at the worst possible time because the Indianapolis Colts are breathing down their necks again behind yeah. in the uh, AFC South. Huge, huge win. Thank Matt. you. Giant, ginormous win. Patriots were the hottest team in the league entering this week, and the Colts did, definitely did a number on them defensively, holding them without points through the first three quarters. And everyone, myself included, were, were holding their breath, you know, their final 15 minutes as the Patriots clawed their way back into this one. You know, making it a one-score game, seventeen to twenty. But Jonathan Taylor, an incredible season so far, goes on a huge run, finishes the game with touchdown, one hundred seventy yards on twenty-nine carries, averaging six per carry. I know the MVP race is between quarterbacks, but Jonathan Taylor, man, especially with Derrick Henry going down, having a phenomenal season so far, and is one of the best players in the league. Only a, a sophomore, only his second year in the pros. Amazing. Another team that I thought was well, no, oh, I actually thought that the Colts were going were going to romp because after three I quarters, I, I thought they're done. They're they're yeah. pitching a shutout, but you know, yeah. I, I, always always in the back of your head, what yeah. can New England pull out? And you're looking at <laughs> the clock and how fast can they score and how fast right. can they run down the field? And right. you know, the the clock obviously was favoring the Colts, but adding that last touchdown late in the fourth was obviously the uh, straw that broke the camel's back for the Patriots, but uh, the Patriots yeah. have very little to worry about right now. That's true. Because, they're still ahead by a lot yeah, in the seas. The Bills are only one game behind, but I believe they have the head-to-head on them. So, uh, right. yeah, so their four-game winning streak, or, or their, their winning streak in particular, has, stopped, has been ended, uh, and the Bills did win, of course, so they are at 8-6. and six. Miami... You know, that win as another team that you wrote off for dead after three quarters that, you know, they, you're same old Dolphins for everybody about same old Jets where they just would snatch defeat out of the jaws of victory, but they do pull it out and they stay in the race at seven and seven and it will go down to the wire because so many teams are in this log jam all within a two game span, you know, Nine five eight six seven seven, okay, and it, particularly in the AFC, and it's so hard to predict right now because the Bengals and Ravens are tied right now for first place, and the Browns only half a game behind. And they play when do they play? Uh, they play tomorrow night uh, against Vegas. So, you know, again, they could be right in there too, and they can, you know give the Ravens and Bengals some trouble because there's still some plenty well, still plenty of time and the Steelers of course they're not going away. So that AFC North is still a toss up. AFC right. South, the Titans, bad loss, Colts great win and that's far from decided. 
Kansas City Chiefs, they had a nice win against the uh, L.A. Chargers, and they opened up some distance, which we were a little bit worried about going into this week. Yeah, you know, that win for Kansas City was huge because, as you're talking about, you know, the distance was really starting to extend. So for Kansas City, you know, them getting that win puts them a game, one or two, I think a game above, two games above Tennessee for that top spot in the uh, AFC. Well, no, no, they're only so, uh, they're only half game. Ten and four. They're, they're yeah. one game, one game. So one game. There we go. Nine, Tennessee's yeah. nine five. But, Tennessee's ten four. Yeah, but the Chargers are eight and six, two it. games behind the division. Exactly, and had they won, it would have been what a three way tie for yeah. uh, first between Kansas, Tennessee, and LA. Mm-hmm. Even so, LA still looks really good, and that that fourth spot is it's going to be a battle for sure. There's a lot of teams in that hunt for the fourth spot. You know, you got seven playoff berths available, and you have Tennessee and New England tied at 9-5. L.A., Indianapolis, Buffalo, Cincinnati, Baltimore, all tied at 8-6. And six. And with teams like the Browns and the Steelers at 7-6, seven, 7-6-1. Six, seven, six so, you know, you got a lot of teams still in the hunt, and at that 500 or better level, this late in the season. And, of course, as we said, the NFL loves it, and... yeah. The gambling it, houses I, love it. And... I don't think I remember, Matt, a time where we're, what, through week 15? And there's, so far, only four teams eliminated from playoff contention. The Giants are technically still alive because Washington hasn't played yet. <laughs> yeah, because they play Philadelphia on Tuesday. Yes, Tuesday. Yeah, that got pushed back because of COVID. Right. And, yeah, very odd, a Tuesday NFL game, but there you go. Uh, but the, yeah, that... NFC East, of course, Dallas uh, is probably going to run away with with the division, oh, uh, but Washington yeah, and Philly still have a shot at a playoff spot, and uh, one will eliminate the other on Tuesday. Most yeah, hypothetically, hypothetically, yeah, Most I, yeah. Pro- probably eliminate the Giants as well. You know, with, with that, so you, you know, even better for them. But yeah, of the two, I predict Washington to to be the better one. It's tough because now they're about their. Their quarterback in Heineke, I believe, and defensively they're all guys because of injury. But yeah, they're missing a lot of pieces because of COVID. And the Eagles just, and that's also been really Titans, where the talent makes up for it. You know, well, they're they're still six and seven, Matt. Well, get a load of this. There is one team in the entire NFL that has nailed down both its division title and a playoff spot. And it was one of those teams that I had written off for dead because they were, you know, they had a nasty tussle with the Baltimore Ravens, but pull it out 31 to 30, the Green Bay Packers. Oh, it was a close one. Uh, that one could have gone either way. And, you know, you think, you know, maybe Harbaugh's not thinking this, but if I'm him, I'm definitely thinking if I get a shot to either go for the field goal or go for two, do I change my mind? Honestly, I would have gone for the field goal played safe. I get why, because you got Aaron Rodgers on the other end. The gunslinger already dropped 31 on you, so you know you already know what to expect, but, you know, to me, that was a game where Baltimore showed a lot, a lot of heart, and Huntley had a tremendous game as well, filling in for Lamar Jackson, but, you know, Aaron Rodgers, especially offensively, he, he, he just brings everyone around him to a different level. You know, Green Bay, one point, went on this scoring spree where they went to the end zone four out of five consecutive drives. So even with that dominance, especially early on in the game, you know, 
Baltimore can still climb their way back and were able to go toe-to-toe against one of the best teams in the league. I think now the best team in the league, the only team with a secured playoff spot. That's right. And Aaron Rodgers, 23 for 31, 268 wow. yards, three TD passes. 31 tying Brett Favre for the all-time passing touchdown record as a Packer. And he just continues to knock records down and yeah. continues to, I guess, I mean, look, the, the Green Bay Packers these past few weeks have been the cardiac kids. Mm-hmm. You, know, you write them off through three quarters and somehow they pull it out. And uh, you know, as a result, Rogers pulls a rabbit out of his hat time in and time out. That's why he's still in the MVP race, even after missing you know, a week due to COVID protocols. And with this big loss, you know, I feel like a lot of folks, myself included, thought Brady was essentially running away from this. And a game like this just wasn't conceivable where he wouldn't finish with a touchdown or put up the best stats. Now we're here. So now you really got to take a second look at those MVP you know, votes and, and think, all right, is it still Brady at number one or is it Rodgers after today? Or is it someone like Jonathan Taylor? I know realistically it's not, but, you know, he's still, you know, put in a lot of work and was ultimately the dagger through the hearts of the Patriots to snap their seven game win streak. So it's real tight in the NFL and that MVP race is heating up even more. Well, most importantly, as we mentioned, this is the first time, there's only a third time Tom Brady's been shut out at all, and the first two times were earlier in his career, way early in his career, 15 years ago early in his career, and this is the first time he's ever been shut out at home. How do you like that? <laughs> Insane. I don't think anyone would predict, predict that, you know, heading into tonight, but, you know, Saints definitely with their wake-up call, you know, Allen once again, is Allen getting the better of Tampa Bay, it's something where if New Orleans sneaks to the playoffs, you know, it's something you definitely got to remember. Because while New Orleans tapered last season, you know, in the postseason against Tampa Bay, it, this was the strongest they've looked against this Tom Brady team, any Tom Brady team, but especially this one. And with one as much talent as this, if Brady's missing any pieces, New Orleans could steal this, steal a game against them come playoff time, and it could be them facing a team like Dallas or Arizona or L.A. They're still in there, by the way. They they have the seventh spot right now, the last spot above Washington, Minnesota, and Philly. Oh, man. I mean, obviously, when you're shut out, your possessions are going to end with either punts or turnovers. But sure enough, I mean, looking from the very beginning, punt, 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 missed field goal, punt, punt, end of half, punt. Punt, yeah. punt, turnover on downs. That missed field goal, Fumble, punt, really punt, the only time. Interception. <laughs> they were they were anywhere close to the red zone, you know. And even then, it wasn't that close. And that fumble, I think, as well. But, yeah, you know, they. it's not even that they were shut out. It's that they really didn't have too many opportunities to score. Now, that Saints defense, it was the defense of the week, probably of the season so far. Yeah, just phenomenal work from them. And, again, just doing a good job getting – to Brady defeating the offensive line, which has been really tough to beat this season. And their defensive backs as well coming big, coming up big of a pick. And limiting, again, those remaining receivers once Evans and Goodwin drop. So, Tampa Bay drops to 10-4. and four, and They're tied for second now with Dallas. I think Dallas is a head-to-head. Overall so. in the NFC, but yeah. they are still 
very much in control. I mean, the Saints improved to seven and seven, so that's good for them. Only problem, however, is that there's such a big margin. Tampa Bay now, this is fourteen. They both played fourteen games. They have three more to go, and uh, Tampa Bay, of course, is three ahead in the standings. So Tampa Bay should be able to clinch the division next week. Yeah, no, agreed. This, the Saints, you know, definitely rising up. I don't think they could win out, but I think they could do just enough to retain that final spot just because of the inconsistency of the aforementioned teams like Atlanta, Philly, Minnesota. Washington's going to be their biggest challenge, but, you know, Washington, if they're not healthy and they don't got, to me, really, they don't have Heineke because they're already missing pieces, especially defensively. You know, they're, you know, they're not making the playoffs. And the NFC East, really, the only team that stood out has been Dallas because a big reason for that, too, is they're so good on both ends. Defense obviously came up today against the Giants because Giants couldn't even sniff the end zone. But offensively as well, even though they didn't have the best game, Dak Prescott has, is having a heck of a season. Zeke Elliott is un- unstoppable, especially in the red zone. And receiving-wise, they got great pieces like Gallup and C.D. Lamb. And Dolan Schultz, the tight end. You know what, though? I think you can pretty much pencil in the uh, division clincher for Tampa Bay. You know why? N- last three games, Carolina, Jets, Carolina. They still have their home <laughs> and home against the Panthers okay, and the yeah. Jets. So, Yeah. That uh, Jets one is virtually a win. But, again, I got to say, we got to go back to this game back because we haven't even touched on it that much. Detroit 30, Arizona 12. <laughs> First the off, Detroit Lions entered this game how, one eleven and one. <laughs> I, I mean, first of all, I mean it's called a puncher's chance. <laughs> okay, you, you yes. always have to rule. I mean, but on the other hand, this is a long shot side bet. Okay, mm-hmm. you put a couple of bucks on uh, the Lions to beat the spread, at the very least. You definitely don't put any money down to win. Anybody who did cleaned up, but. Uh, they proved the two eleven and one, and the big question is why and how. I mean, <laughs> first Unbelievable. off, you, I mean, Unbelievable. Jared Goff twenty one for twenty six, three touchdowns, two hundred sixteen yards, but twenty one for twenty six, five passes all day long dropped. That's amazing. It is. It is ridiculous. And the interesting thing too, funny thing is, well, Jared Goff. And the run, Craig Reynolds, 26 carries for 112 yards. I mean, yeah, they, they he, couldn't he lose off. either way. Yeah. To me, that's really been, I think, Arizona's biggest weakness is that their run defense is not up to par with the rest of of their defense. I think they got a good, really good defense. But it, it just, again, as you said, no answers for Jared Goff, no answers for Craig Reynolds. Jared Goff, though, it's funny because if there's one team he always excels at playing against, it's Arizona. Even going back to his uh, Rams days, he's 8-1 overall against the Cardinals. And Cardinals are winless in their last five games against Jared Goff. And he has, I wish I could find the stat, but he has, I think, a 75% completion percentage against the Cardinals. No, he just tremendously owns this team. And through the first half alone, he was 15-19 of for 171 yards and a pair of touchdowns. I, I mean... <laughs> everybody, you picked yeah. a, a week for everybody on the Detroit Lions to have the the game of the year, maybe even game of careers. I mean, this 
is pretty much what it would take to beat a 10-3 uh, Cardinal team, and they did. At, at home, of course, in Detroit. But, you know, that is the highlight of their season. I mean, oh, for sure. If you're a it Lions is. fan, it, it, you put that. You know what? I, it's second I half say, of the season with the Jets, yeah. right, so the Jets and the Giants, we were hoping for that they would at least be entertaining. That's yeah. the type of game you were hoping for. So at least Jet, uh, the Lions fans got some entertainment out exactly. of it. Uh, yeah, exactly. You know, just history, literally. This is the first time in NFL history. A team with one win has defeated a team with 10 wins on the season by double digits. <laughs> and, and honestly, you know, looking at this Lions team, in my opinion, they are way more deserving of the wins and even more wins on their record than teams like the Jets, really teams like the Giants. Because to me, you know, this Lions team, they come so close time and time again before they ultimately got that first win against Minnesota a couple weeks ago. You know, the, the Lions, you know, they remember, go back against that game against Baltimore. You know, technically, that first off, they Baltimore won off an incredible historic field goal. It was 63 yards from Justin Tucker. Mm-hmm. But the play clock was already at zero. So the Lions got screwed out of one there. And they've been playing in a lot of tight, you know, one-score contests where ultimately it goes the other way. And even that game against the Vikings came down to the last possession, last pass of regulation for them to get the win. You know, this team, are they a good team? No. But they got a lot of heart. And they, honestly, they just have this gear that they managed to go into when it's, you know, when it's time and when they're in those tough battles. You know, they're a team that really improve, I think, throughout a game where even if they're not playing too well, in the first half, they're still going to give you five in the second. That's something these New York teams, Giants especially, are desperately missing, number one. And uh, number two, you know, for Detroit, they were on it from the opening kickoff. You know, this team was on a roll against Arizona, and Cliff Kingsbury had no answers for the Lions. I mean, I'm looking at this right now, that you've mentioned it, and yes, the win was was a nice big one, 18 points. They did lose big to the Broncos last week, mm-hmm. but you take a look at, first of all, they've won two out of three because they beat the Vikings by two, but they lost to the Bears by two. They lost to the Browns by three. They tied the Steelers. They got destroyed by the Eagles, but they lost by nine to the Rams, lost by 23 to the Bengals, but lost by two to the Vikings, 10 to the Bears, and two to the Ravens. Yeah. They have, have, I think, six one score games and they've gone one four and one in those games. You know, it's you know tough draw of the straw, but at the same time, you know, this team could have, you know, easily been a three, four, five win team at most, you know, had some of those kicks, field goals, or some of those plays gone differently. So, you know, this to me is a team again, they're not a good team, but they're definitely a, I think today is people are starting to get credit that at least there's a foundation there that you can build off this, you know? And again, I go back to the Giants because I looked at them today, they were horrible. You know, to me, there was nothing that stood out where you could build from it. You know, seriously, what can you take from this game other than that they suck? There's at least bad, the Jets. And there's at least irrelevant. the Jets, Matt. Yeah, at least the Jets, you know, they looked like they were doing something. You know, yeah. even if they weren't the better team, that first half, they were not only playing good, they had a lot of heart. And honestly, doing things I don't think I've ever seen in a pro game. I think it was uh, James. It was Crowder. He, he caught a caught a ball towards midfield. 
you know, ran five or six yards, and as he was getting tackled, he boxed out his defender, did an insane underhand pitch that traveled about nine yards back to, I think, Braxton Burials, who caught it and then took it up the field for another 15 yards and ultimately turned, I think it would have been an eight-yard catch to, like, a 22-yard catch. You know, I've never seen anything like that in a pro game. And although the Jets didn't score, it's just there's that creativity there. And, you know, this Jets team, which has nothing to play for, they're they're already out. They're picking fourth and eighth as, as of today in the NFL draft. They are showing more fight than a Giants team that's technically still in the hunt. It's unbelievable. It, it really is. And when you're when you're rooting for a young team or a team that's rebuilding, that's what you're looking for. You're looking for effort and you're looking for things that you can hang your hat on. I mean, Lions, you know, this week they gave you something to hang your hat on. Yeah. But the Jets and the Giants is one of the reasons why everybody's so, you know, down on them is that they don't do that as a general rule, although the Jets have been doing more of that than the Giants have. But, again, the big problem is that the same idiots who built this team, these two teams, are going to be the ones making the draft picks next year unless – Ownership uh, has a different opinion, and you're hoping they do, uh, because you know people are basically saying that you know, the Giants have to clean house. But the big question is, will they? And we talked about this before that the pressure from Roger Goodell and the league office isn't there like it was 40 years ago with Pete Rozelle. Okay, yeah. Roselle saying you're embarrassing us. Hire George Young and you know start getting serious. Well, the league seems to be doing fine without decent teams in New York. You know, yep, Goodell isn't, isn't complaining, and even <laughs> though the league office is in New York, no one seems to care. And I'll say, this is the most entertaining season in years, and you notice the only team from New York we mentioned was Buffalo. Right. And even then, <laughs> didn't have to mention them too much. Well, you know, and Buffalo's you know, had its issues, but... Yeah, but to your point, as you said, Giants especially got a clean house, and as of reports, as of today... It sure looks like that's not going to be the case right now. CBS Sports reporting Kevin Abrams is a strong contender to come the next GM. And I don't know what else you could expect if you got a guy who's in-house working under Gettleman to essentially replace him and do the same things. I mean, <laughs> you know, you it's know, not looking good for Giants fans. The, the Giants, Giants have won four Super Bowls since the merger, since there have been Super Bowls. So you really can't. You know, look way back to you know, like 1960 or sometime like that as a turning point in Giants history, but it kind of was because when you had your coordinators were Tom Landry and Vince Lombardi, and neither of them took over as head coach of the team, you know that began their the Giants' decline that lasted for 18 years. Mm-hmm. But this, you know, the turning point here, the front office has shown nothing. And they've had plenty of time to do it. We're not talking about two or three years here. We're talking about, you know, much longer term. And Nine, football least. teams turn over faster than in other sports. Mm-hmm. You know, like, uh, you know, Parcells would say, yes, we can turn a franchise around in two years. We did it with the Jets. We did it with the Patriots. Did it with the Giants. Honestly, so look at, look at teams now that are in the playoff line. Look at the Cowboys, how, you know, Bismol, the whole NFC East looked last season. How was it 10-4 right now? For the teams like the Bengals, who were – Amongst the worst last few, last couple seasons, now they're eight and six. You know, you just go up and down and see how these bad teams. Buccaneers, obviously, they were on the bubble, and then they signed Brady and instantly, you know, Super Bowl winners. The 
because careers are so short in the NFL, not for long, uh, the turnover is high. Therefore, you should be able to, if you make a couple of good, good draft classes and a couple of free agent signings here and a couple of trades there, you really can turn a franchise around. No, agreed. But, you know, I'll say this with the Jets, it feels like they're trying. And, you know, it's just not working. Like, you know, they got the opportunities and, you know, it just goes, doesn't go their way. The picks just don't work out, whatever the case may be. The Giants, it, it it's like you, you're you almost trying to make the worst team possible on paper with some of the guys we've been seeing the past few weeks. I mean, you know, it's not drafting-wise, but just signing as well. Mike Lennon as your quarterback, oh, my gosh. You know, <laughs> you got Jake Fromm in the third string. And he had a good outing because they weren't even trying to play defense on him. They played be prevent. Better so off get into the end zone. with an open tryout. Yeah, honestly, at this point, yeah. You know, reports are Daniel Jones isn't returning. And so you're going with, you know, your your recent draft pick hasn't completed a full season since he got drafted to the team. You know, Saquon Barkley's back, but who knows where he fits in this offense. And even then, you know, who says he's not going to be used as a trade piece? Your longest tenure player is Sterling Shepard, who just tore his uh, ACL, I believe. So he's out probably for the rest of his career because he was already on an expired contract. Tore his Achilles, by the way, or corner of reports. So it's probably his final possession. Well, definitely out for the season. You know, there's, Won't yeah, see him until next year. It's just nothing to build on, you know. This team is toast. <laughs> <laughs> 